Bible through, or even part of the Bible, you'll know that it challenges its readers with many, many questions. And one of the key questions is this. How can a holy, righteous, glorious God accept a sinner like me? And there's only one answer to that question, that is the gospel. That the only way for sinners like you and me to be accepted with God, to be made right with God, to be reconciled to God, is through Jesus Christ alone. He is the only Savior. His perfect person, his saving work on the cross, his resurrection, we must trust in him. And as we come to Galatians 3 this morning, that, that stunning truth is before us, and in particular what is often known as justification by faith alone. Now the believers in the church at Galatia had lost sight of this. And so Paul has to remind them again of the key clear truths of the gospel. That we cannot be saved by anything that we do, but only by what Jesus has done. And by looking to him, by his perfect life, his death on the cross and his triumph. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We have no righteousness of our own. We cannot earn our way into his favor. We are sinners. We are lost. We are broken. We are condemned. We need to be rescued. And yet in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that there is that only way in which our sin can be dealt with, can be forgiven, and the righteousness I need to be accepted with God is actually given to me because it's Christ's righteousness. He has done all that was necessary for any one of us to be saved if we repent of our sin and believe in him. And so to be accepted by God, I must accept the amazing gift of God's free and sovereign grace, which he enables me to do, giving the gifts of repentance and sin and faith to be exercised in his Son. And you know, these great truths, this great truth of justification, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, that's the clear call of the gospel. But there are many who don't want that. You know, even amongst those who claim to be Christians. Why? Well, if salvation is all of the Lord, if it's all of grace, then the glory goes to God alone. And there are those who, who don't like that because sinful man is, is proud. You know, we like to think that we've got some part, that, you know, we saved ourselves, or at the very least, that we've contributed something. Really, they want some of the glory for themselves. But you see, this gospel is the gospel of God. The problem is that often the way that people have sought to sort of add those things in is to add works to the gospel. So the idea that we can only be accepted with God through what we do, or that continued acceptance with God is by what we do, our works. One of the main issues that the reformers faced in the Protestant Reformation, one of the great reformers made it very clear, the doctrine of justification is this, that we are pronounced righteous and we are saved solely by faith in Christ. It's so important to keep fighting for that truth. Because, friends, we can be prone, just like the Galatians, of falling into the trap of beginning to look to ourselves rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And you say, well, you know, why would we want to wander away from the amazing truth that in Christ all our sin is dealt with once and for all and we're accepted? You know, we are pardoned. His work is a complete work. Why would we want to do that? Well, the accusation comes, doesn't it? Well, if salvation is all of God, if it's all of grace, why bother living for him? You know, if our works don't add anything, if they don't contribute, why live to God's glory? Well, a changed life is the outworking of a life touched by grace. Hearts and minds overwhelmed with the truth and the love of God, we will want to do what pleases him. We've been given those desires to do that which pleases him. And so this stunning gospel truth is not just a comfort in death, but it is a motivating power in our lives all the way through. And so we need to see these things clearly, and we see them here in this text. Now, I want you to see that the Galatians, they have been gripped by error. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing to the church at Galatia to confront a serious situation, deadly error, which has come into the church. And so at the beginning of the letter, he reaffirms his credentials as a true apostle of Jesus Christ, unlike the many false ones. And at the beginning of this passage, he goes back to basics and he begins with a very strong rebuke. Now, as would have been the practice, these letters would have been read out to the church. And can you imagine how they must have felt when they you know, got to that part, the following words were read out, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Very strong words. They're direct words. They're full of concern. And actually, they're full of... Uh, a, a righteous anger. Why? Because the gospel of grace was at stake. The error was so dangerous, it could lead many to ruin. And quite simply, a group of Judaizers had come into the church and basically said, it wasn't enough to trust Jesus to be saved. You had to add in all this other stuff, obeying the laws from the Old Testament other man-made laws as well, only then would you be truly accepted with God. It was Jesus plus all this other stuff. But as Paul argues, if that's true, what was the point of the cross? If that's true, why did Jesus go to the cross to die as the Savior, to die as the great substitute for his people? Why would someone have to die for my sin if, in fact, I could sort it out myself? You know, Paul makes it very clear. If you look back at Galatians 2 and verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So that is how serious this matter is. It is a key gospel issue. This undermines the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And so you can understand Paul's intense and his furious response the Galatians had embarked on a direction which was going to ruin them in many ways, and also the gospel could be lost in that place. It was stupid, it was dangerous, and Paul was dismayed that they so easily had been led astray. Friends, you know, it shows us that it is very easy for churches to lose their way when they come away from the Scriptures and when they come away from the gospel of grace. Just a, a little shift here or there, a, a coming away from searching the Scriptures, the infiltration of, of false teachers, and before you know it, error has gripped. 
and you see it again and again and again. And there can be a naivety at times as well amongst the Lord's people, a, a lack of discernment. And the consequences are never considered. And that is what we see in this church at Galatia. They came in and they were allowed to take their preeminence and all of a sudden you've got all of this error and it's gripping and it's ruining. And such was the behavior of these Galatians that Paul says that they'd been bewitched. That literally means to cast a spell over, to hold spellbound by an irresistible power. Now, he knew they weren't enchanted, but they'd been ensnared by the influence and the persuasiveness of very dangerous false teachers. They're actually agents of the enemy. Those who came and were able to get a hearing for their Jesus plus message, adding their wrong views of obeying the law of Moses to faith in Christ to have salvation. And so it is clear that you have the enemy of souls at work all over this. He loves to sow confusion. He loves to distort the truth just enough so that people cannot tell the difference between the truth of God and false gospels. And so the enemy was at work. He had his forces at work in the church. And the Galatians, they were foolish to allow all of this to come in but they had failed to see that it was a spiritual attack, that they were in a warfare. You know, it's the same today. You know, it is tragic that there are many believers who flirt with promoters of error, wolves in sheep's clothing, and they don't know the truth well enough to see the error. And even though the Scriptures say we are not unaware of the enemy's devices, yet there are many who still go unprepared into the battle. And that's what's happened here in the church at Galatia. And sadly, it's what we see in so many areas. So they're gripped by error. So what is the response? How do you break the hold of that? Well, do you remember when Jesus said in John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The way that the grip of error is broken is by the reaffirmation and proclamation of the truth. And so the true gospel needed to be brought back to being front and center. And that's what Paul does here at the beginning of Galatians 3. Look, if you will, at verse 2. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Paul will talk a lot about seeing with spiritual eyes. Error had come through the evil eye the Galatians needed to be brought back to see again the cross of Christ, to see again the glory of the Savior who died and yet rose again. And so when Paul had come to them the first time, he had been preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, the gospel. He had held Christ before them through the preaching of the truth. And you know, the idea of them gazing upon this in no way suggests visual aids. You know, there's some who argue that this is advocating visual aids or images or gimmicks, and it doesn't mean that. It means that Paul preached in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit, and such was the unction upon that preaching that it took them, as it were, to Calvary, so that they could see with the eyes of faith, they were brought to see Jesus Christ the perfect Son of God who went to the cross to die in the place of all who would trust in Him, to save them, to redeem them from their sin. You know, it's interesting. One of the questions that always gets asked 
guaranteed every time when school groups come to look around the building, why haven't you got a cross? Why don't you display a cross? Well, the building we know is designed to be plain without any icons or images, so there was no distractions in worship. But we do want to display a cross, but through the preaching of the word. We do want to take people to Calvary, but through the preaching of the gospel, in the power of the Spirit, so that men and women, boys and girls, will be brought to see the power of the cross. The Lord Jesus there, as he died for his people, as their substitute in their place to deal with their sin, to endure the wrath so that they could be set free, Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, one puts it like this, let God's servants preach the gospel in such a way so that men may see Christ crucified, that his blood may flow, that they may be washed. When the church has such painters as these, there is no need for wood and stone or any dead images. That happens when the gospel is preached with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God takes these great truths, these glorious acts of God in salvation and makes them real to the hearts and minds of those under the preaching of that word. You know, so when Paul went and he preached to these Galatians, they were given to hear with the inner man. They felt the reality of Calvary. They felt they had seen the events of the cross. They knew the significance of the cross. His death, his suffering, his triumph over sin and death and hell. They saw it with the eyes of faith. They believed. They trusted. And the preaching of Paul and the other apostles always focused on Christ. They began with the, the truth of his person, that he was the Son of God. God amongst men, fully God, yet fully man, two natures, and yet one person, the God-man. He had to be, for as the, the perfect man, he had to be able to enter into our situation, to face all that was necessary, to be tempted in every way like us, to overcome, to die as our substitute, to bear our sin in his body on the tree. And as God, he was able to live in perfect obedience and offer the sacrifice of infinite value. So they preached his person. And they also preached him crucified. Paul always preached what he called in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross. Resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Savior who willingly went to that cruel cross for his people to atone for their sins to endure an eternity of suffering and wrath that they deserved, to shed his own blood without which there was no remission of sin, the sacrifice of the precious Lamb of God, the ultimate deliverer. And it is also important to see that when Paul speaks of the crucifixion in this letter, he uses what we call the perfect tense. He uses this when he speaks of having been crucified with Christ in Galatians 2, and we find it again here at the beginning of Galatians 3. Now, so what does that mean? Well, what it means is this. He speaks of the cross as an event which has happened in the past, but which has ongoing significance in the present. 
So yes, the Lord Jesus was crucified on a particular day by particular men outside a particular city on an actual cross. If we had been there to see it at the time, we had been able to see all these things, touch the roughness of the wood of the cross, witness the horror of all that took place. The cross was a real event in history. In fact, it was the most significant, important event to ever happen, the pinnacle of history. A once-for-all sacrifice. And as Jesus laid down his life, he paid the full price of sin and rebellion of his people to redeem them. The cross, the place where justice and mercy met, the sacrifice accepted, effective, finished forever. So it actually happened. It was a real event. But the significance and the impact, the effect of the cross continues even today. In fact, it went back and it went forward. It's incredible, the impact of the cross of Christ. And God declared that the saving work of Jesus on the cross was accepted by raising him from the dead. So to preach Christ crucified is not just to preach him atoning on the cross, but also the fact that he's no longer there, that he's risen, that he's alive, that he's reigning that he's saving all who call upon his name, and one day he's going to come again. And the Galatians, they'd forgotten all of this. They'd set it aside. Paul had set this before them, the glory and wonder of the Lord Jesus, and yet they'd been so quick to turn away and embrace this dreadful message of the false teachers which sought to ruin it all. And you know it's the same today. There is a tragedy that so many seem to be discontent with the word of God and the truth of the gospel and hanker after all manner of extra things. The gospel is glorious. And they were unwilling here and even today to accept salvation in Christ alone. They want to add their own touches to the provision and deliverance of God. And so Paul takes them all the way back, right back to the beginning, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that he has done everything necessary for them and for us to be saved. And in fact, he's the only way for sinners like you and me to be justified before a holy God. So it is utter foolishness to add anything else to that complete work. It is appalling to think that our efforts of law-keeping, as was the argument here in Galatians Uh, the the false teachers, what they were saying, it is appalling to think that our efforts of law-keeping could in any way add to the perfection of what Jesus had done. No, it is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And so he stops them, and he confronts them, and he rebukes them, and Paul appeals to them, and he takes them back to basics, and he asks them, a series of questions, and I'd just like you to look at them, to make them think, and he he looks at their spiritual experience. And so he takes them back, firstly, to the point of their conversion. Look at verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then he asks them about how they're going to make it through to the end of their Christian life. He says in verse 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And then he asks them about the things that they had faced in the cost of following a crucified Savior. Verse 4, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? 
And then he mentions the miracles that the Galatians had known. Verse 5, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Every one of those questions is making the same point. Does the Christian receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You see, these Galatians, they believed they could not deny the work that God had done in their lives. They couldn't deny that. They couldn't deny the spiritual life that had been given by the Holy Spirit, but they needed to see it wasn't by their own endeavors. They'd not given themselves life. They'd not earned life. They'd not worked life in themselves. It was the gracious intervention of the Lord. Every believer is a miracle of grace. You're a believer this morning. You're a miracle. You're a miracle sat in that pew. You're a miracle of grace. And each person of the Trinity is involved in your salvation. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior. The Father and the Son send the Spirit to bring the blessings of that salvation to you. The Galatians, they had seen the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. They'd seen the evidence of His work in their lives. They'd witnessed the signs and the miracles that had accompanied that in the early church. They'd been displaying some of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. They'd seen unforgettable, undeniable evidence of his presence and work. And now Paul very simply says, what was the cause of the Spirit's work among you? He asked them so that they go back to the truth to explain their spiritual experience. And they could only answer in one of two ways. It either came through their efforts, the works of the law, or because it was given of grace. Because it was graciously given to them to hear with faith. He says you either received this as a result of what you did to keep religious law in general or by faith. And if the Spirit came by their works, then it makes the presence and blessing of the Spirit a reward for my spiritual efforts, for my progress, for my apparent achievements. So there is something I must do to unlock this and to get this. And by the way, that's still more common than you might think. Not necessarily in terms of Judaizers, but so many people are looking for what they can do to get what they think is going to be some spiritual experience, some method to guarantee the blessing. That's not the gospel. God is not mechanical. You know, to truly know the Lord is to be brought into a right relationship with him. And we can know fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. And the indwelling of his presence is part of this gracious salvation given, and we know this only by faith alone. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the one who must be at work in the life of a sinner to convict and to give that life, to enable a sinner to believe in Jesus. And in fact, the Spirit's work is revealed when the sinner believes, when they're converted. And so the question Paul asks is so straight and powerful, and it just leads them to see they didn't do anything to receive the Holy Spirit and know his work in their lives. They knew his intervention to bring them to the Savior long before all this falsehood came. 
They'd been under the anointed preaching of the gospel. The Spirit of God had opened their ears to hear, their eyes to see. They'd been given the gifts of repentance and faith to simply trust in what Jesus had done on the cross. And they believed the gospel, and in doing so, demonstrated that the Spirit of God was at work in them. You know, the working and presence of the Holy Spirit is never a reward for a person's works. His presence and intervention is a gift granted on the basis of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Verse 5, you see, that's what Paul says. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you, God generously sends his Spirit, not to those who observe the law, but to those who believe the gospel. And this precious gift of salvation is received by faith, the faith that lays hold of Christ. So if you're a Christian this morning, you have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God in your life. You have all the blessings that come with that. Now, we can know more of his work. We should long for a greater sensitivity to his work. We should long for a nearness and a fullness. But there's no two-tier Christianity, those with and those without. If you're a true believer, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And notice this, that the work of the Holy Spirit is never set over and against Scripture and the truth of Scripture. They're intertwined. You cannot live by the Spirit unless you're grounded in the truth. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth, is the author of Scripture. And whenever the Spirit of God is at work, Christ will always be exalted. That's the test. Christ will always be preeminent. And so Paul brings them back to these basics. He says, this work that's happened in your life, these things that you've known and seen, where do they come from? Is it from your efforts? Or is it from the gift of God, the working of the Holy Spirit? And as we draw these things together, he exposes the error. Because as soon as the Galatians admitted that, the issue was settled. The false teaching was blown apart. Paul knew once they acknowledged that the Holy Spirit was received by faith alone, the error would be exposed. And so the truth of the Holy Spirit is known by faith alone has profound implications for our lives as Christians. It means that it is all of grace from beginning to end. It means it starts the same way as it continues and as it will be brought to its conclusion. Verse 3 speaks about how foolish it is to trust in the flesh. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So apart from God's work in us, we are weakness, we are sin, we are fallenness. Paul says, do you really think you can make yourself perfect by your own efforts? It's absurd. But that was what the false teachers were saying. They said, well, you know, you've got your faith and that's okay, but you could only be truly justified by doing all this other stuff. It's a nonsense. And you need to be clear. There is never, never any need to refinish the finished work of Jesus Christ. To do so is to ruin and deface the glory of what God has done. And Paul knew that only God could finish what he had begun so that completion must come by faith and not works. He said the exact thing to the Philippians when he wrote to them, God will complete the work in you that he has begun. 
And so how stupid to go back to the law, especially considering all that the Galatians had faced. Some say it's the physical suffering that they endured, persecuted for following Jesus, or it could be speaking of the work of the Spirit in their lives. Would all that be in vain, he says? You know, we need to remember this for ourselves. Sometimes we think that, again, by what we do, that somehow we are gaining more favor with God. And that can be a very dangerous spiral to go down. All blessings come to us through Jesus Christ, knowing him, walking with him, being in him. You know, one danger when dealing with these verses is to think that they only speak of the process by which a believer is made holy, what we call sanctification. It's easy sometimes for believers to see justification as something which just happens right at the beginning. So in other words, you know, when you're saved, converted, and then sanctification, that follows, you know, everything else that happens after. And so they, they think, well, we're justified on conversion, and then we move on to sanctification. Now, there is some truth in that. Sanctification does follow, you know, being made like Christ, being made holy. It does follow being saved and being pronounced justified before God in Christ. But, and this is really important, as believers, justification is never just left behind. So what do I mean by that? Well, it's this. We will never stand before God on the basis of our own righteousness. We will only ever stand before God on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus. And so once and forever, we are justified before God by the righteousness we have received by faith. And as believers, God is changing us, working in us to make us more like the Lord Jesus, to make us holy. We are justified. And even though there's a sense in which we're already sanctified, that being it's not in doubt, we're in that process of being changed. But we can never use our obedience with all of its imperfections to establish merit before God, to establish righteousness before him. It is only in Christ that we stand. And so we pursue holiness. We want to be like Jesus because we love him. And we want to do what pleases him. And we want to commend him and show the reality of his work in our lives. But it is never to earn merit with God. And so from beginning to end, the whole Christian life is by grace through faith. New life commences in Christ by faith, continues by faith, will be completed by faith. And so, friend, it is the most liberating thing. This gospel should never become tiring to us. God forbid that we should boast in anything but the cross. There's nothing to add to what Jesus has done. There is nothing else to add to the faith as the ground of our salvation. It is by faith that we are united to Jesus Christ. Works don't give us the basis of salvation they are the outworking of it. Faith without works is dead. But the Christian always looks to the gospel. There is no such thing as Jesus plus. No such thing as a performance-based gospel. Having begun by faith, we continue by faith. And this is a truth which should pervade all of our lives, Christian lives, if we're believers should move us to live for his glory as an expression of our love for him, 
our thankfulness, our desire to please him, not to earn merit or his favor. So as we finish, if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to see without Christ, you are without hope in this life and the next. The Bible says that you're dead in your trespasses and sins, that you'll face condemnation, and God cannot accept you in any way apart from his son, Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you think that somehow by what you do, you're going to make yourself good enough for God, you need to put that aside because there's no truth there. There comes a point when a person must admit to being a sinner, to being rotten to the core, deserving the judgment and the wrath of God. And when that day comes, the only hope then is to turn from all that, to turn from sin and lostness and despair and to turn to Christ and to simply believe in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you're a believer this morning and you're wrestling with doubts, what about you? Well, there are days in the life of a Christian when everything seems far off, uncertain sometimes, we're wrapped with doubts. Does God really love me? Does he really have a plan for my life? Does he really have his eye upon me? Does he care for me? When the doubts come, where do we go? We go back to Christ, go back to the cross, seeing there that Christ died in our place, demonstrated his love for us. If God should send his son in that manner, how will he not also give us freely all things? So we do not need to doubt, we need to trust. What about if you're downcast and a believer this morning? Well, there are times when we go through valleys and things seem gloomy and hopeless, maybe at times impossible. We think, well, how are we going to get through another day? Go back to the gospel. Go back to the Savior. Realize helplessness, sinfulness, but in Christ we have a great Savior who has loved us and has given himself for us, and how having saved us, he will keep us, and we can trust him, and he will bring us through. His work is a finished work. The glory of the gospel, all of grace, faith in Christ, if we know him, then we are and always will be justified. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Wonderful place to be, and I pray that you would know it. Is such faith yours? Are you trusting in this Jesus who is able to save to the uttermost all that call upon his name? To be outside of that is to be in great peril. To be in Christ is to know true life and peace and joy both now and forever. Amen.